Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 17 this morning. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Philippe Petit is a Frenchman. His name is probably pronounced with a very French accent that I can't do without saying ha 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 at the end, so I'm just not going to try, okay? Uh, Philippe Petit, is a, he's a tightrope walker, a famous tightrope walker. In fact, he is probably best known, and you may have even seen the image, for illegally walking a tightrope between the two world trade towers high aloft New York City in 1974. He spoke about this in February of 2012, and he said this, On the top of the World Trade Center, my first step was terrifying. (laughs) Just the first? Okay. All of a sudden, the density of the air is no longer the same. Manhattan no longer spreads its infinity. The murmur of the city dissolves into a squall whose chilling power I no longer feel. I lift the balancing pole. I approach the edge. I step over the beam. I put my left foot on the cable. My legs are shaking just thinking about this. The weight of my body raised on my right leg, anchored to the flank of the building. Shall I ever so slightly shift my weight to the left? My right leg will be unburdened. My right foot will freely meet the wire. On one side, a mass of a mountain, a life I know. On the other side, above him, the universe of the clouds, so full of unknown we think it's empty. At my feet, the path to the north tower, 60 yards of wire rope. It's a straight line which sags, which sways, which vibrates, which rolls on itself, which is ice, which is three tons tight, ready to explode, ready to swallow me. An inner howl assails me, the wild longing to flee, but it is too late. The wire is ready. Decisively, my other foot sets itself onto the cable. Can you imagine the nerves? I'm nervous just reading about it as I'm thinking about it. And he says, it's too late to flee. It's not too late to flee. It's not too late. No one will think ill of you. Just run. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for your legs to hold you under those circumstances when the stakes are that high. One wrong slip, one shift, as he says, of his weight the wrong way, and his foot goes free, and he plummets to his death. The Apostle Paul has been encouraging the Philippian Christians in the book of Philippians to press on in following Christ. That's what he tells them, press on in following Christ. And in our passage this morning, he's going to encourage them 
in their pressing on to stand firm. Because as we will see, much like walking this tightrope between two skyscrapers, the stakes, he says, are incredibly high. Philippians 3, 17 verses to, to chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so grateful we are to be here in your word, opening it, reading it, thinking deeply about it. But without your spirit, that's all we can do. We pray instead that your spirit would be living and active among us, in us, working through your word to convict us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, to give us the gift of repentance, but to give our mouths the song of praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. From as far back as chapter 2, Paul has wanted the Philippians, wanted to get their attention, and he's wanted to get it centered mainly on one thing, and that is them emulating people that are worth emulating, copying people that are worth copying. The first person that he says that he wants them to emulate as far back as the beginning of chapter 2, you remember, is someone you know very well, Jesus himself. He wants them to emulate Christ. He, he puts Jesus in front of them, and he says this in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to enumerate the things that Christ did that demonstrates that pattern for us of humility, that he humbly went even to the cross. He goes on to demonstrate that for them. But then he gives two examples soon after that of people that he's sending them, Christians, that he wants them to look closely at their life, a pattern to follow. The first person is Timothy, who is coming to them because he genuinely cares for their, their, their own welfare. His cares and his interests are that of Christ above his own interests. He's putting Christ's interests above his own. And so Paul knows that by sending you Timothy... Timothy is going to serve you well because he's going to, in putting Christ's interest above his own, he is therefore going to serve you well. But he's also sending them Epaphroditus. He's actually sending Epaphroditus back to them. They sent Epaphroditus to him to minister to him. And when Epaphroditus got there, he got sick. 
near death and, and almost died. And so Paul, now that he's better, is sending him back to the Philippians. Paul calls him a fellow soldier in verse 25. And he encourages the Philippians there in verse 29 to receive him. And he says, honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Timothy and Epaphroditus as well. Finally then in chapter 3, Paul puts himself forward as someone to follow. He wants them to avoid, he says, the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. There are probably a lot of different people that might qualify as dogs or evildoers or those who mutilate the the flesh, but it seems that Paul has specifically one group of people in mind, and it's people that taught that their righteousness was founded on something other than Christ, namely their obedience to the law. They thought that they could achieve the righteousness of God somehow by obeying the law. To which Paul says, in response to that, I tried that. I tried obeying the law perfectly, and I was pretty good at it, actually. I was, in fact, blameless, he said. However, what he came to realize is that all of his obedience to the law left him in utter bankruptcy. Paul's righteousness, he says, he insists, doesn't come from him. It comes from Christ. It's a foreign righteousness. There is, in other words, something wrong with Paul that he cannot fix in and of himself. He has to have the righteousness of Christ given to him. It has to come from outside of him. And it's given to him by God's grace. Which leads Paul to begin our passage this morning in verse 17 with the words, Join in imitating me. And then he follows that up with, With the example you have in us. Meaning all of these people that he's just talked about. Jesus, Timothy, Epaphroditus, himself. Imitate us. But our passage this morning isn't mainly about Paul wanting them to imitate him. That's not the main point of what he's getting at. He does want them to imitate him, but their imitation of him is to serve a greater point. In fact, the encouragement to imitate Jesus and Epaphroditus and Timothy and and himself in, in all of those things actually points to something greater. Look at Philippians 4, verse 1, there at the end. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You can see his love for the church of Philippi. You can see his, he calls them his joy and his his crown. Their persistent faithfulness to Jesus not only makes them his brothers and sisters, but it also validates, it's a stamp of authenticity on his own apostolic ministry. Proof that Jesus is real is the way the Holy Spirit moves in you, brothers and sisters. They're what he was dying for. They're what he was working for. What he was in prison for. But his main challenge to them is right there at the end. Stand firm this way. He says, stand firm this way in the Lord. In other words, all of the examples that I have provided for you or the people that I am sending you are a means to which you stand firm. 
You emulate them, and by emulating them, they are going to lead you into firmness. So at the end of them standing firm, Paul gives them two main points that he wants them to consider. How is it that they're to stand firm? How do they accomplish this? And that's what we're going to consider this morning, and we're going to put it in the form of a question. First, the first point that he asks them really is, who are you watching? Who are you watching? He wants them, he says, to imitate him, namely in what he's just said to them, which is that he has forgotten a kind of righteousness that was built on his own work. He's forgotten that kind of righteousness. And instead, he's pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he's telling them, follow me as I do that. As I forget about my own righteousness and rest instead on the righteousness of Christ. Follow me as I do that, he says to them. But not just him, he also wants them to keep their eyes on the examples that they have in Timothy and Epaphroditus in Jesus. The point is, you have many examples to look to who are in one way or another demonstrating how you follow Christ. These are the people that you're to watch and to imitate. imitate. Then he gives them examples to the contrast. In verse 18, he says these are people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, there's a great deal of debate as to who he's actually talking about here, but he does give us just a few clues. He says that these these people, he says, whom I have often told you and now tell you. So even if we don't know exactly who these people are, there's a great chance that the Philippians know exactly who he's talking about. Now that said, at the beginning of this chapter, he warns them uh, to, to look out, look at back, back in verse 2 of chapter 3, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So I'd say the chances are pretty high that the group that he refers to in verse 2 is the same group that he's referring to just a few verses later in our passage this morning. These are people, as we talked about a few weeks ago, who profess to be Christians. They profess faith in Christ in some way, or they at least profess that they're the God-fearing type who follow God to some degree. Perhaps, maybe even, they follow the teaching of Christ, but don't actually take His righteousness. Their gospel is very different. Their righteousness is defined by their own faithfulness to the law. Their own degree of faith, you might say. We have enough faith. We have enough righteousness. We have enough works to guarantee our standing before the Lord. They might even say that they're Christians, but then actually lack a real understanding of the gospel and the righteousness that can only be found in Christ. He says, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You have to understand that the cross of Christ represents more than simply forgiveness of sin. Though it does represent that. It's infinitely more than Jesus merely showing us humility or obedience even, though it does show us that. It's even more than Him showing us the love of God. 
Though it does show us that. The Bible testifies, even just the passage we read previously, testifies the fact that it does show us that. It just shows us infinitely more than that. Specifically, what Paul has been talking about in the context is that the cross of Christ demonstrates where our righteousness ends, where our own righteousness got us. It got us to this point. Look at Calvary. There see the bloodied Son of God hanging on a cross, suffering God's wrath. And know that's where your own righteousness got you. That's what kind of standing it placed you in before God. Our own faithfulness to the law, our own righteousness brought us here to the foot of the cross where the eternal Son of God had to give His perfectly righteous life for us. You understand. How far did our sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs, how far did it get us? Well, it brought us here to the foot of the cross where God had to provide His own lamb for us because none of ours were sufficient enough. The rehearsal of all of Israel's traditions, you know, they go through year after year, they, they celebrate all the feasts and festivals and they, they participate in all the celebrations and all the memory of their history and their story, all their rehearsal of the story through all of their yearly festivals still brought us to the foot of the cross where the Passover lamb had to die so that his blood could be shed for us so that the angel of death would pass over us for eternity. That's how far our celebrations got us. That's how far our own righteousness got us. Our frequent trips to the temple, where the high priest would sacrifice the lamb and sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the, on the, the, uh, the altar and, and make atonement for the sins of the nation, still brought us here to the foot of the cross, where the living embodiment of the temple of God hangs there on the cross, slain for us, so that His blood might appease the wrath of God. How far did your righteousness get you? Nowhere. It got you still in need of Jesus. That's where it got you. The cross of Christ represents the end of any argument we might ever be able to make that first, our sin wasn't really that bad, or that our goodness is potentially enough to withstand the justice of God. 2,000 years ago, on Calvary, God said to that idea, false, fake news, incorrect. God went to the greatest lengths possible to satisfy His own wrath to the point of sending His Son to die on our behalf. So here's a group of people that is coming in church after church after Paul is preaching that gospel of not your own righteousness, but of Christ's righteousness. Here's a group of people coming in after him and telling them precisely the opposite. No, no. Ignore the cross of Christ and continue to trust in your own goodness. How else could you describe them but an enemy 
of the cross of Christ. Mind you, obedience to the law that they advocate for still won't cut it. You realize that? It still won't cut for God's righteousness. Paul, remember, was a Pharisee. A blameless one at that. And yet Jesus tells us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So instead of trusting in Christ's righteousness, they reject the gospel and trust in their own righteousness instead. And this makes them enemies of the cross of Christ. He goes on in verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He goes through this list. And if it were translated literally, you would see a lot of colons and probably bullet points in there if he was formatting it like we would. Or like I would probably. Their end, colon, destruction. Their God, colon, the belly. Their glory, colon, in their shame. Their mindset, colon, earthly. He goes down this list of what is necessarily true for one who rejects Christ and the true gospel. You cannot see, he says, past the end of your nose. Your God is your own belly. You haven't given serious consideration to your position as you stand before the throne of God on judgment day. You're so short-sighted that your life is just meal to meal. You can't think past your own hunger pains. You haven't given any thought past that. Now, this is a bleak picture. Wouldn't you agree? Paul paints here. It's pretty, pretty bleak. Someone who rejects Christ. But don't lose sight of what he's doing here. He's actually exhorting the Philippians to keep their eyes on the opposite kind of people. People who have Christ as their supreme treasure. Nothing else will satisfy. Their ultimate treasure. Who have Christ at the center of their life. The center of everything they do is Jesus. Who are you watching, Philippians? He's saying. Because there's a lot of people out there who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Who are the ones that are influencing you? There is perhaps no greater warning to us this day and age than to caution us on our influences. We have a title of a person. It's actually kind of a job title now called Influencer. And, and some of them make a lot of money doing it. Their whole goal is to influence you, to get your eyes on them. Well, then there's no better exhortation to us than to ask, who are you watching? Who are you keeping your eyes on? In his book, Losing Our Virtue, David Wells says, worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and His truth from the world 
and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Listen to that. Hear that. Just this little part here. It displaces God and His truth from the world. It makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That's what worldly influences do. That's their goal. That's what they're trying to persuade you to. To set your mind on earthly things. They're enemies of Christ-centered endurance. They don't want to see you walk in accordance with Christ. They want to work contrary to that and keep your mind on earthly things. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. But what's remarkable about this passage is that in the context, Paul's strongest warning, perhaps, comes to us against those who are closest to the body of Christ, not those who are furthest away. In other words, he's not talking about the demon-possessed palm reader on the outside of town who dabbles in cult prostitution. He's not talking about that person. He's talking about the people who come into the church, who live amongst members of the church, who are closest to people in the church. He's warning against dogs and evildoers. People so vile, here's what they do. This is how vile they are. They advocate for living rightly and being circumcised. That sounds strange. That's how close they are. We're not talking about the palm reader on the outside of town. We're talking about people who advocate a kind of righteousness. Probably a kind that in, in the culture that we live in would be welcomed. Right? You hear somebody on TV advocating for just a, a good moral living. Just, just live right. Wouldn't you say, amen, I can at least get behind that? Closer than most of the rest of the world? He calls them mutilators of the flesh. But the reason that we think that they're really close to us is because we have in our minds a view of the Christian life that is a wide path where everyone who expresses some sort of marginal interest in the Lord, even if they refer to Him with nebulous terms like the big man upstairs, gets in. That's the wide path of Christianity that we've set. It's a path so wide that you just walk by the church and say the name Jesus and you're in. We might even baptize you. But that's contrary to what Jesus says. He says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only few find it. I'm tempted to think that it's a wide path. But Jesus and Paul and my Bible are telling me it's actually a tightrope. It's a very narrow wire 
stretched between two ridiculously tall buildings. And all it takes to plummet to destruction and to shame is to set your mind on earthly things, which is counter to Christ's righteousness for you. All it takes is that little misstep. All it takes is trusting in yourself to provide your righteousness, and there you go, off the high wire, plummeting to the streets below. That's all it takes. It's anything other than having Christ as your supreme treasure, being ultimately satisfied by Him, being content in your station, having Him at the center of your life. This is how serious an offense it is to shift away from Christ. Paul would not only warn about the doctrine of these people that's being taught, but he would also discourage the Philippians from staring too long at them, lest they follow them off the edge of the wire, down to the streets below. Instead, he says, they shouldn't be emulated. He says they should be pitied. He says he's driven to tears over the fact that this is the case. But of course, in our Instagram culture, we prize those who have their minds primarily set on earthly things. We envy the ones who have great looks, who show to us all the pictures of their great family and their fantastic vacations. Hashtag no filter. They always eat the finest foods, or so it seems. Or you get the flip side of that, don't you, on social media? You also get the ones who keep it real, who tell you, it's okay to not be okay. Am I making sense? You've seen this before? Am I the only one? This is real life. Girl, wash your face. This is the real me. Hashtag again, no filter. Maybe, just maybe, we'll go out on a limb here and suggest that Paul might say to us, if he were standing here, maybe, as it pertains to social media, Emulate the one who doesn't spend her day on Instagram because she's too busy doing the work that God has put her here to do. Maybe that's the person you should pattern your life after. I'm quite confident that there'll be no social media in heaven. Please, Lord. Not only is our addiction to it the definition of setting our minds on earthly things. But if Paul's right here, and I think he is, it's an enemy to your endurance. Think about that for a second. Do you see it that way? An enemy to your endurance? Instead, let's pay close attention to those who have no room for gossip in their mouths because their mouths are always filled with thanksgiving. Or emulate the ones who seem to never have a bad word to say about anybody because they're too busy being encouraging toward others. How do you stand firm? Well, first, be careful who you watch and imitate. But second, we have to ask, what is the outcome that you're hoping for? Where is your hope place? What is the outcome that you're hoping for? 
So contrary to the enemies of the cross of Christ who have their minds set on earthly things, our minds are always to be set on the fact that this world is not our home. Look at what he says in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even to subject all things to Himself. So the way that Paul understands his own life And the way that He wants us to understand our life is that in Christ, we have become citizens of another kingdom. That we're no longer citizens of the U.S. in an ultimate sense. Or citizens of whatever country in an ultimate sense. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven in every sense of the word. And I really mean this as literally as you can mean it. It sounds like I'm being figurative, but I'm not. And I don't think Paul is either. I think he means it literally. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He says in Colossians 1, 13-14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that is God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So God the Father, working through the blood of Christ on the cross, lifted us from our earthly citizenship, where, or, or U.S. citizenship, or wherever our citizenship is, where our minds could only be set on earthly things. And He has moved us, transferred us, to the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is a very real citizenship transfer. It's spiritual, of course, but that doesn't make it not real. It makes it more real because it's ultimate and it's eternal. For the Christian, our citizenship, which means our allegiance, our loyalty, is to Christ exclusively. Exclusively. It's to Christ exclusively. Not first and foremost to this nation, you understand. Not first and foremost to the flag. Not first and foremost to a party or a platform. Not first and foremost to a politician or to the president of either party. Our allegiance is to Christ. It is really, really important. And I think perhaps more important of a concept for American Christians to grasp than almost any other concept in the New Testament. That our citizenship is in heaven. Not here. Paul is laying it out here because it really matters for how we understand what our lives and their purpose really is. Because we are citizens of heaven as as a Christian. I'm on this earth. I am here as an exile in Babylon. You understand? No matter what country I live in, I am an exile in Babylon. And much like the exiles in the Old Testament, as he tells them as they go into Babylon, I'm to care for my neighbors in Babylon. I'm to pray for my neighbors in Babylon. I'm to work for their well-being. I'm to pray for the elected leaders in Babylon. But why? 
Why do I participate in the electoral process? Or why do I pray for my elected leaders if it doesn't really matter? My citizenship isn't here. He, he tells us in 1 Timothy, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. The reason that you pray for elected leaders, the reason that because our citizenship is in heaven, we don't just disconnect entirely from the process, is because the gospel still needs to flourish. It still has work to do. And you're to pray and work for those ends. I want my neighbors to be blessed. But ultimately, I want them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that my citizenship is in heaven changes everything about the way that I go into the voting booth. Now, I'm not immune to political opinions. I have plenty of them as you can probably imagine. I'm not short on opinions in any capacity, that's for sure. I've never been accused as much. I'm certainly not immune to political opinions. I think that Christians should advocate for liberty because it does lead and has led to the greatest flourishing of the gospel that the world has really ever seen. But that said, we can frequently advocate so loudly for our favorite candidates that it sounds more like they're our Savior. You know that? Sometimes the way we go about promoting the people that we're going to vote for or advocating for the people that we're going to vote for makes it sound to others like they're the ones that your hope is placed let me put it this way, if your barber or your beautician knows more about your politics than your gospel, you're doing it wrong. Let me say it another way, if you feel more comfortable talking to a complete stranger about politics or about your candidate than your savior, your American citizenship has become a god to you. So when you hear your citizenship is in heaven, you're tempted to equivocate. Well, but certainly, we live in the promised land, right? I mean, no. Paul's words here are timeless. Don't let your citizenship become a God to you. He said here, the earthly-minded person should have no appeal to you because whether he's an American citizen or somewhere else, he has ultimately settled for making mud pies in the slums than a holiday at sea that his Savior has given to him. No matter who this earthly-minded person is, no matter what country he represents, it all falls woefully short of the kingdom that Christ has promised. Your life, Paul is saying, is with Christ. And it is eternal with Christ. And one day He's going to return, and if your body has already gone into the grave, He's going to raise it and transform it and dwell here on a remade earth with you and Him forever. 
And if you're still alive, he's going to transform the body that you currently have. Paul is referencing this. He mentions it again in 1 Corinthians 15, in 2 Corinthians 5. You can go there later and look up those things. But this is what a Christian anticipates and what he's to long for. Where there's going to be no more death, where there'll be no more cancer. And praise God, there will be no more elections. Jesus will reign unopposed. No contenders, no ballots. For Paul and for the Christian, this is already a reality, even if it's not yet completed. Even if it's not yet fulfilled. So we're to live now in such a way so as to communicate to everyone that our hope isn't in this world. But it's actually in a new and better kingdom to come where Christ is on the throne. And whether it's in our politics or the way we even talk about or handle politics. Or the way we handle anything. It should be known to everyone, my hope is not here. Brothers and sisters... This is the only way we can ever hope to stand firm. And it involves these two things. First, we have to be careful of what kinds of influences we let into our lives because they are frequently an enemy to the cross of Christ and hinder our ability to stand firm. And second, we also must remind ourselves that our citizenship is in heaven, not here. So when, when talking about how he was able to walk this tightrope between these two skyscrapers, Philippe Petit said, faith replaced doubt in my dictionary. That's how. Faith replaced doubt in my dictionary. Now, I suspect that what he means is that faith in himself replaced doubt in himself. Let me just be clear. But when it comes to standing firm in the Christian life, the answer is not dissimilar. Paul tells us we walk by faith and not by sight. The difference is, the main difference is, that our faith is not in ourselves or in our own ability, but in the Lord who holds our citizenship in His hands. Remember what Paul said at the beginning, He who began a good work in you will see it to completion when Christ returns. He's the one who grants our faith to believe. So this walking of the tightrope of the Christian faith is completely impossible as a high wire between two skyscrapers might seem. It is completely impossible. It is only made possible by the blood of Christ, the Spirit that He caused to dwell within us and empowers us to actually move across the wire to put one foot in front of the other. In the meantime... We have to take care to feed it, the Spirit that He gave us. It's not as though, because God has in His sovereign hand the beginning, the end, and the means, that we can just disconnect from Christian life, and we can just say, well, then nothing that I do matters. Nope. God doesn't let you off the hook that easy. In fact, He encourages you, in His Word, to stand firm. He exhorts you to feed it. And what we find is those who actually have the Spirit of God dwelling within them care enough about their own soul to feed it. And here's how they do it. First, through those who are influencing you. By paying close attention to who has your ear. Do they regularly engage in gossip and slander and profanity? I mean, if you really turn a, a scrupulous eye to what they say, 
Is what they're saying normally gossipy or slandery or maybe even profane? Are they loose themselves with sexual practice? Well, they're way far off the high wire. And so you might say, well, no, of course not. Okay, let's make it more narrow. When they counsel you, do you hear back to you the gospel? When they counsel you, do they say, this is what Jesus would do? Are you walking as Christ would walk? Are you doing as Christ would do? Or do they always support you? Do they ever contrast you, or do they always support you? Do they always tell you what you want to hear? Or do they ever confront you? Look instead to the godly. Those who have a holiness that looks so strange that it just might be right. Follow them. But second, feed your faith by setting your mind on where your citizenship actually lies. This comes through the regular means of grace that He gives to you through your church, through your Bible, and through prayer, through Christians around you reminding you of the Gospel. We are walking a tightrope, and the stakes couldn't be any higher. There is destruction on either side. And it's possible only because Christ empowers us to stand firm by securing our citizenship in the palm of His hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for endurance. We ask that by Your Spirit You would empower us to stand firm. No doubt there are many things that we are soon to be facing. We have lived in a country where freedom of religion is worn as a badge of honor. And soon that may disappear. I pray that even now, as the culture moves away from Christianity largely, that we would stand even more firm that you would test us, that you would know us, and that you would make us ready for a battle so fierce we have never seen before. Help us to know your word and to love it, to recognize it. To not let our ears tickle so much that we would gather for ourselves teachers to scratch the itch. but instead that we would faithfully follow your word. Give us an appetite for your word, a desire, an earnest desire to wake up in the morning, to put our head in your word, to pray, to seek you night and day in our workplaces, with our friends and family members, all alone in our room. Give us the strength to stand firm. Help us, Lord. I am praying you know every bit as much for me as anyone else. Give us the strength in our legs to stand firm by the power of your Spirit, trusting in Christ the whole way. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.